Welcome to Visions and Voices on Global Issues, a podcast of the World Affairs Council for Inland Southern California. Our guest today is the president of the American Academy of Diplomacy, Ronald E. Newman, a three-time United States ambassador, including to Algeria, Bahrain, and Afghanistan, and a former deputy assistant secretary of state. Ambassador Newman has devoted most of his professional life to the foreign service. His career includes tours as a political and military liaison in Iraq, and as Deputy Chiefs of Mission in Abu Dhabi, in the United Arab Emirates, and in Yemen. He was the U.S. Principal Officer in Tabriz, Iran, and Economic and Commercial Officer in Senegal. Ambassador Newman has language skills in Arabic, Dari, and French. He is the author of a memoir titled Three Embassies, Four Wars, and also The Other War, Winning and Losing in Afghanistan. He received State Department Superior Honor Awards in 1993 and 1990. In Baghdad, he was awarded the Army Outstanding Civilian Service Medal. In 2018, he was awarded the American Foreign Service Association's Award for Lifetime Contributions to American Diplomacy. An Army Infantry Officer in Vietnam, Ambassador Newman also holds a Bronze Star Army Commendation Medal and Combat Infantry Badge. Ambassador Newman, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Ambassador, I'm sure that some of our listeners will be interested to hear a little about your personal biography and what first drew you to the Foreign Service. When and why did you decide to join the Diplomatic Corps? Well, when I was growing up, my father, who was an immigrant from Austria, was a university professor. He probably would have joined the Diplomatic Corps himself, except that in those days there was an age cut off, and by the time he had U.S. citizenship, he was too old. <laughs> but uh, throughout his teaching time, we had foreigners coming through the house. Uh, he taught twice abroad. I went to school in uh, primary school in Europe, France. And somehow all of this just gave me a taste for this. And I made up my mind in high school, uh, sort of nerdy kid, that uh, I wanted to join the Foreign Service. It took me another 11 years and uh, contact to in Vietnam before I got there, but I did. Fantastic. Um, so through your decades of work in the Foreign Service, what have been some of the most important changes in how the United States conducts its foreign policy that you've observed? Well, the importance of multinational uh, institutions has gotten much larger in the time I've been in the Foreign Service. Also, I think the importance of citizen groups, non-governmental organizations, these have come into play in a much more fundamental way than would have been true, uh, you know, in the 1970s when I first joined the Foreign Service. And they have made a major impact on things from climate change to the landmine treaty to the International Criminal Court. So that governments now have to take that in those kinds of actors into account. Also in the private sector, there is a much greater uh, involvement in projects that have some relationship to assistance to AI to aid. And so all of those things, then of course, there are the technical, uh, technical changes that, you know, even the State Department, which has finally traded in its electric quill sharpeners, is uh, getting more modern in terms of outreach. So of your many assignments around the world, are there any experiences that stand out to you as models of what you would consider successful diplomacy or efforts by the U.S. government that you are particularly proud to have been involved with? 
That's an interesting question. Of course, sometimes I think that a lot of one's career is devoted to hitting off really stupid ideas. <laughs> but I, I would say, uh, in terms of a broad operation, not one in which I particularly had a, a particularly starring role, but uh, at one point the U.S. government wanted to keep nations or have all nations possible take an exception to the International Criminal Court because we wanted to protect American uh, military personnel from being hauled into that International Criminal Court, or at least the potential of that happening. And it was very interesting because it was a very carefully calibrated approach with instructions to every ambassador and then follow up and then uh, the U.S. government working its way up to the cabinet list to have senior officials in Washington calling counterparts. It was very successful. What was interesting was it was a way of bringing together all your regional diplomatic efforts with close cooperation. It didn't require special envoys. It didn't use people jumping on and off planes and flying madly around the world. It acquired, required just simply really good diplomacy. Uh, backed up by really good organization. And I, I think it's a, I cite that because it's not a terribly important issue for many Americans, unless you happen to be in the military and might have been hauled off to the International Criminal Court. But because it shows the importance of uh, using your diplomacy and having it organized and run by professionals, it wasn't about yelling and screaming. It, it was about how you did the work. So just to clarify, um, were you during your time or even in the present um, in support of the International Criminal Court or the, uh, the U.S.'s involvement with that? Where, how, does, how do you see the U.S. Um, engaging with that? Yeah. Well, I regret that the U.S. didn't join, but I thought the U.S. had a reasonable position that it wanted an exemption for our military personnel because the U.S. in fact has a, uh, a judicial system capable of holding people accountable. That was the big issue that we wanted. And, and the treaty in a way provides for that in general terms. I, I'm not a lawyer, I should stress, I'm not a legal expert. But um, the notion was that the court should only be involved if the country doesn't do its own job. And we wanted that as an exemption to protect our military personnel. And the international, the NGOs particularly were opposed to that. And we said, you know, if we can't have that, we won't join. I, overall, as one who has served in these murky situations of wars, um, I'm sympathetic to that position. And I, I think there's an interesting lesson here that a too pure a position will often keep the U.S. out of something where it could be a major assistance. And so the landmine treaty, which is now 30 years old or more, but again, the U.S. wanted an exemption that we wanted to uh, preserve the landmines that we were using in places like Korea, where they're all under control and where the U.S. point of view was that if there's a North Korean attack, we're going to lose a lot of American lives if we don't have mines. 
And we're not the country that's selling mines willy-nilly around the world. We don't just give them away. We're not the country that's, whose mines are primarily responsible for a lot of civilian casualties. That's Russia, others. Uh, but we couldn't get that exemption. There was a sense of purity about the, uh, the argument. So the result was that one of the major countries that would cooperate in restraint of landmines, the U.S., is outside the treaty. And the countries that are doing the things that really create a lot of civilian casualties uh, of indiscriminate use of landmines, like Soviet Union, now Russia, are not in the treaty. Um, and are not restrained. And so I, to me, it's an interesting lesson that too much purity can be an obstacle to getting anything accomplished. And you could argue that on both sides, I suppose. What about people who might look at something like that and say, um, well, why is the U.S., why does the rest of the world need the U.S. to be involved with a, with a treaty like that if the U.S. is not one of the perpetrators of placing the landmines, how critical is it for the U.S. to be a participant? Well, I think the U.S. brings a lot of diplomatic weight to bear in that kind of situation. There's a great deal the U.S. can do. I mean, the U.S. has one of the largest demining programs in the world in control. It would be a good thing if that was coordinated with others instead of just being off on our own. And, uh, so I think we would bring useful influence to bear if we were inside that group. And by the contrast, I would say that no useful purpose was served by keeping us out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's very interesting. One of my um, very first jobs out of college was actually with a small NGO in Kosovo shortly after the war mm -hmm. there. And I remember some of the demining groups that were working in the region where I was, who were actually from South Africa and uh, Zimbabwe, uh, with experience in that part of the world, probably in Mozambique. Um, so I guess the, my next question is kind of the flip side of the, the last question I had asked you. Um, what are some illustrations of diplomatic failures that you've witnessed during your life and um, examples of how foreign policy in your view should not be conducted? Hmm. Uh, that's probably a long list. <laughs> uh, I would put Iraq pretty far up that list. Um, a more complicated situation, Le leaving aside whether or not we should have invaded in the first place, uh, which I have mixed feelings about. The evidence was not there, but it wasn't a falsified job the way many people believe. I, I worked on those issues before the invasion. Uh, I was director of the Iran-Iraq office, actually, from uh, 91 to 94. But once we got into Iraq, we had no understanding of what was going on on the ground. The, Mr. Rumsfeld was resistant to having any State Department people come in for a long time. And so we didn't, we didn't bring in people who could have, if not brought experience, at least brought the ability to acquire knowledge. Uh, we had all kinds of unrealistic ideas about how we were going to change the entire country. And I, I spent 16 months in Iraq working first for, uh, for Ambassador Bremer and then as the coordinator with the military. And in the, in the first period, the civil military relations were absolutely terrible. 
In the second period, they got much better. Uh, but we just lost an enormous amount of ground uh, on aid of all kinds of things because uh, of all kinds of reasons. We wanted to do too much. We didn't understand. We exaggerated our influence. Uh, one, one could go could go on and on. Um, but it was an area, it was a time when we gave very, when things were flexible at the beginning, right after the invasion, when we were still fairly popular, um, we gave very little credence to the need for real well-reasoned diplomacy. Uh, later on, we couldn't really make up the ground. Mm. So, Pivoting to more recent events, how would you characterize the last four years of U.S. foreign policy? And, you know, maybe to put the question more, more specifically, um, has, have the last four years been, in your view, a significant break with, with previous administrations, both Democratic and Republican? Or have you seen more continuity than discontinuity in what has been going on? Overall, they are serious break, and overall, I think the record is very poor. There are some places of success. I don't want to be just the, the if it's the Trump administration, it's bad. I, I think there are too many people who are working now on the basis, I know what the answer is, just tell me the question, um, on either side of the, of the issue. So there are some successes. I think the signing of the so-called Abraham Accords with uh, the UAE and Bahrain with Israel, that's a success. Um, and, you know, you at least haven't gone to war with Korea. There are not a lot of successes to look at. Uh, now, there's one, one issue, of course, you get into is what's a success. So some people would argue that having torn up the nuclear agreement with Iran, we have put tremendous pressure on Iran. Iran is suffering. And so you could say the sanctions are a success in that they are causing problems. But they're not a success in the terms of any of the reasons for having them. There has been no new negotiation. The Iranians are closer to building a bomb than they were before we walked out of the agreement. They have not pulled back their actions in the region that we find difficult. So no objective defined by as purpose for those sanctions has been met. Um, our, our alliance relations around the world are in worse shape. And there, you know, there is an argument that we need to take care of ourselves. And I think that is true to some extent. But it is also true that 70 years of prosperity and overall peace for the United States have been heavily influenced by our alliance relationships. And our allies are now unsure of us. And so when you have these decisions, as you had in Syria, as you had a couple of weeks ago in Afghanistan, that we are in a combat situation with allied nations and they suddenly wake up one morning and find we've changed our policy and we're pulling out. We have not consulted with them and we frankly don't give a damn what happens to them. And you go through that a few times and people are going to remain uncertain about your quality as an ally. That doesn't mean you can't leave a place. It means you have to consult with other people 
about what you're going to do and not just take them by surprise. Uh, and we're not doing that. And that, unfortunately, is going to remain a problem after the Trump administration because people have now seen that America maybe can't be counted on as much as it could be. So even if a Biden administration wants to return to more of what you might have called business as usual, people will have in their back of their mind the question, well, you know, that's fine for four years. What comes after Biden? How much can you count in the United States? Some of that may be good, makes people do more for themselves. But I think overall, the lack of allies has been harmful. So this, you mentioned Iran. This past week, Iran's top nuclear scientist was assassinated in northern Iran, which Iranians have blamed on Israel and the United States. You spent much of your career in the Gulf and even served in Iran. Based on your expertise and experience in the region, what are some of the possible diplomatic and strategic implications of this event? Hmm. Oh, boy, we could spend the rest of the time on that one, I think. <laughs> um, Iran, it, Iran's, well, first of all, let me, let me reemphasize, I'm not in the government, I'm retired, and I don't speak for anybody officially. Uh, Iran has usually made a practice of retaliating for these kind of actions. Where they retaliate will depend partly on how they look at this, who they think is responsible. At the same time, it's happening at a very delicate period where the Trump administration is giving way to the Biden administration. So there's there will be a lot of pressure within Iran to hold back until it sees where a Biden administration is going. At the same time, to the extent that the Iranians see themselves sort of in an undeclared war with Israel, they will probably may well look for Israeli targets um, to hit. Could be diplomatic, could be others. Um, and then you have the involvement of the Gulf Arabs so that if, thing, if people start slinging missiles around, they, the Gulf states with their very vulnerable petrochemical facilities, desalinization facilities, which are key to survival, um, those are all potential targets. So it's a, it's a nervous period, won't necessarily, won't necessarily turn into a war. I, there's, I've seen no indication the Iranians want to get themselves into a war with either us or Israel. So they will they will look for a retaliation at some point at a time and place of their choosing. But what it will be, I have no way of predicting. What do you think President Joe Biden's highest foreign policy priorities should be during his first, let's say, 100 days in office? <laughs> you know, first of all, administrations have only a limited ability to go with their highest priority because events tend to drive them. So Afghanistan is clearly not the top priority of the Biden administration in its first 100 days. But Trump is pulling out troops. The Taliban are making no concessions for peace. They're trying to, for his pool game, I'd say they're trying to run the table before, Brian, uh, before Biden gets to break. And so Biden is going to be forced to think about does he have to do anything to stabilize the situation or to hold it up? Or will events just take his freedom of action and decision away from him? 
I just I cite that one partially because I'm pretty close to things in Afghanistan, but also because it's it's an example of how events can drive you even if you would rather be concentrated on something else. The the big foreign policy issues that Biden is certainly going to have at the top of his agenda uh, will be relations with China and with Russia. And those are very different. They have all kinds of different components. But underlying them is that effective policies with either one really need allies. It's much harder to have effective policies just by yourself. Um, but we have differing interests with some of our allies. So getting a common policy in place with Europeans about Russia, about the Ukraine, that's going to be a, a tough prospect, even though I think they would like to have a common prospect. Um, with China, we've had all kinds of trade wars. We haven't had any particular success with those. Um, I think Biden will need to figure this out. He's going to have a lot of domestic pushback if he just undoes sanctions. Does he undo sanctions without any gain? Can he bring allies in to target the sanctions more and by having a more unified alliance framework, put more pressure on China? Uh, you know, so some of these things he'll have pretty clear ideas about, but then he has to get in and figure out how much he can actually do. And of course, he's going to be very distracted by the the economy. The world economy is going to be a major component uh, of his foreign policy as well. So you spent much of your career working in the Middle East um, and in the Gulf region. And of course, during the last uh, 15, 20 years, that really dominated headlines. I think Fox News had it um, among its foreign offices, you know, vast majority of them were in that part of the world. Um, but attention seems to be shifting now somewhat to, to China and, and, uh, and the Pacific areas. Do, do you think that the Middle East will play a less important role in our thinking and in foreign policy in the coming years? Or do you think it will remain a major, a major area of concern for us? I think, it, I think we will try to have it be an area of less profile. And I think we will have difficulty doing that. Turning your back on the Middle East has the long record of getting bit uh, in sensitive places when you've turned around. And it makes it difficult to ignore it as we wish. So we have a lot of different conflicts going on. Our ability to deal with them is limited. Some of them, I think, are more directly important to us than others. Yemen is a huge humanitarian crisis, maybe a weaker case for national interest beyond people dying, which is important. Uh, Libya, stabilize, finding a way to stabilize Libya is a huge issue because Libya is the gateway for so much of the immigrant, illegal immigration, refugee immigration to Europe, which then destabilizes Europe, which brings you into issues of radical movements because space in Libya is being used as base camps for Islamic State. So there, there are a lot of things that either threaten us directly or indirectly that come out of Libya. And one perhaps needs a policy there. We don't 
seem to have, we have a policy, but we seem to work against ourselves in some ways. Uh, so there are different issues that will require different involvement. And then there's some where you're just going to have long arguments about how much you could afford to do nothing or how much control you have and how much choice you have about doing anything. You know, some places, Afghanistan, where I spent too much of my time probably, um, is a, a place where, you know, the last time we had any good choices was 15 or 20 years ago. Now, now you have choices between difficult, bad alternatives. They're all distasteful to some extent. And so is the price for getting them wrong. You know, there's, there's been a lot of literature lately um, sort of lamenting the decline of American power or standing in the world, talk about America no longer being an indispensable nation or being eclipsed by, by the rise of China, things like that. Um, what's your reaction to that kind of uh, th- those those prognostications of uh, America in decline? Do you see America American power and influence waning around the world, or will America remain uh, indispensable in in a real sense moving forward? I think, in many respects, it will remain indispensable. I mean, you could argue about what that means, but. Um, I think our economy will rebound. There are a lot of reasons to believe that. Uh, you know, from Hamilton on, we have recognized that strong foreign policy requires a strong functioning economy. Uh, I think when you look at many of the big issues around the world, we're not going to be able to dominate many of them. On the other hand, solving them without us is incredibly difficult. Uh, and solving them without our active participation is still very difficult, quite apart from opposition. So whether you're talking about transcontinental, transnational crime, or climate change, drug smuggling, uh, or arms trade, or intellectual property theft, which is a big part of the problem we have with China, intellectual property being stolen, um, trying to have a worldwide response to those things without the United States playing a role is, if not inconceivable, is at least extraordinarily difficult to imagine how that's going to work. It's hard enough to figure out how it might work or how the situation might be improved with us in the game. Um, without us in the game, they're much, much harder, and, and people know that. So we will, you know, whether you want to call us indispensable, I don't know, but we will certainly remain of major weight. Well, thank you very much, Ambassador Newman, for your time. We've really appreciated your, your insights and uh, look forward to your upcoming uh, conversation with the World Affairs Council for uh, Inland Southern California. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. I look forward to the conversation.